Welcome to Fast Forward, presented by Commotion, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. As always, I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for Commotion. And as always, I'm joined by Jonah Bliss, VP of Media and Marketing for Commotion. Welcome back, Jonah. Hey, Greg. Hey, listeners. Another eventful week ahead here. More SPACs, more EVs, the OEM strike back. I don't even know where to start, but what have we got? Well, I, I know where I want to start, Jonah, with a whimsical... Yeah, you see anything fun on the internet, Greg? <laughs> I was going to say, all I do is look for fun things on the internet. Uh, keen listeners know that I think a few weeks back we talked about uh, Porsche uh, coming out with a you know an electric bike to put on the end of your electric McCann when that comes out, or I'm sorry, your electric uh, Taycan, uh, Taycan uh, you know, station wagon variant. Well, now you can go on ClassicDriver.com, a site where I spend entirely too much time, where someone has created a customized BMX bicycle as an homage to the rare Lamborghini Diablo SE30 Jota. Now it's a it's it's you know it's a it's a knockoff, it's a one-off, it's a, it's nothing special. But I just think it's fascinating, Jota, that you know that that people now feel the need to like pair supercars, new or vintage, with their own cool bicycle. I just think that's a really interesting sign of where like the culture is shifting, I would think here that, you know, got to have a cool BMX bike, go with your Lambo. I, I think it's generous that you're calling that bike cool. It's uh, garish is maybe the word that comes to mind. But I suppose if you're a Lamborghini fan, that's par for the course. <laughs> yes. For those, for those of you who want to see it in all of its purple awesomeness, head over to classicdriver.com, send them some traffic and take a look. But, but back on like, you know, actual micromobility, there's, there is real news and it's a, it's a big one, I guess, in the, the world of the U S market here, uh, New York city, like, I mean, obviously the largest transit market in the United States and one of the largest in the world finally has welcomed in micromobility in a, in a comprehensive way. And only three were chosen with some big names left out. Jonah, who are the three? Yeah, so two are pretty familiar, uh, Bird and Lime, kind of the, the two big boys of the uh, micromobility world. But then the third is a, a much lesser-known player, Vio. Uh, I think they're based out of Chicago and been deployed in, in a few different markets, and they kind of famously claimed they were the first uh, micromobility company to actually turn a profit. I think in response to uh, the Lime CEO, Wayne Ting, saying that they were going to do that, they were like, no, we've already done it. But um, this is their moment in the Big Apple, I guess. Yeah, and it's interesting. And, and the names that were left out of this, right? Like, so two immediately jumped to mind for me. One, of course, is uh, Spin, which is you know plays well with cities. Obviously, had eyes on this contract left out. And then the other one jumps to mind, a smaller player, but yet close ties to the city in many ways, was Link, which is the one that comes out of Super Pedestrian. And I believe Link's head of policy is is Paul Steely White, who for years headed Transportation Alternatives, major cycling advocate in New York. So that's got a sting for them uh, that they were not chosen for that. So it'll be very curious to see like how New York manages this process of adding other players and sort of you know maintaining that. But uh, but yeah, for now you know that's a that's a big win for the for the three who managed to clear that hurdle. Yeah, and, and for for listeners that haven't been tracking this story that closely, I mean, you know, New York famous for many things, transportation, but generally not. <laughs> small form factor ones um, and not only has the battle to get micromobility as a shared service approved been a, a long uphill climb but uh, even like other things like e-bikes have long been super contentious in new york with all sorts of sort of sad implications in terms of you know who needs e-bikes often you know delivery workers who are largely immigrant communities and you know the nyc uh, nypd you know just doing meaningless uh, grabs of people's sources of income um in the you know, just <laughs> seemingly for no good reason, but it's uh, yes, and, and 
And two obvious, you know, tie-ins of this. One, Andrew Yang, who, you know, is by is leading in most polls for the next mayor of New York, which will be interesting because they're going to adopt ranked choice voting for this year. So first of its kind uh, for New York City mayor elections and largest in the country. But Yang, just this past weekend, uh, you know, or weekend before you're listening to this, um, you know, basically commented that, yeah, that perhaps New York needed to crack down on its street vendors uh, to protect the rights of those who had sort of legal permits and got immediate blowback and had to walk back some of that position. Because as you noted, a lot of those vendors have taken a lot of police enforcement and a lot of the delivery uh, drivers on electric carts have taken this as, you know, viewers of Commotion Live have seen with Sarah Kaufman from NYU. But this also takes us to the next step, again, about sort of the dark side of mobility in many ways, which is, yes, the various legal rights of using mobility and how it opens you up to enforcement. And we've tragically seen this again in the United States, obviously, with the killing of Dante Wright uh, by police uh, in greater Minneapolis, metro Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center is the community. Uh, and also the the uh, the stop of Karen Nazario, a U.S. Uh, Army officer who, you know, was also basically uh, targeted by police and body camera footage shows that he was effectively threatened by the officer. So further underscoring that, you know, that, uh, that mobility so often can be sort of offering this legal pretext uh, to which to do a traffic stop and do a search and do all of these things. And uh, it's raising, again, more serious questions about how should we enforce mobility in the United States? And this gets back to the heart of surveillance and data and police and all sorts of questions that we don't have the expertise or the time to delve into and solve on this, Jonah. But it just sort of, I think, underscores in many ways the stakes of so much that we talk about and cover at Commotion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, I mean, those killings are just tragic. And, and so uh, I think I've said powerful, of course, three times in the last couple of minutes now, but uh, just another sad day in America. But yeah, to your greater point about um, how we enforce the rules of the road and how we can uh, take the police out of the equation wherever possible um, while still trying to keep vulnerable road users safe. Um, that's the trillion-dollar question. Indeed. Well, moving on to something slightly less weighty there uh, in getting back to public transportation, offering that alternative for people. There's some interesting news out of the Bay Area this week. Um, I was going to say, John, this, this one I remember reading, it struck me as so obvious. Why haven't we ever discussed merging BART and Caltrain? Is there a reason for that? Because that seemed, I, would seem to I, make sense. I think, I think folks have been discussing it since before you and I were born, Greg. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, like, like anything else in the world of U.S. public transportation, there's all sorts of turf wars and politics that generally stop uh, things that would make life better for the riders from happening. But yeah, for, for people that know, you know, transit in the Bay Area has really suffered, perhaps worse than any major city uh, during the course of the pandemic with you know, BART and Caltrain continuing to bottom out beneath their worst projections. And this is kind of uh, brought back up the question which must be asked is, could we perhaps merge these two transit operators, both BART and Caltrain uh, operate heavy rail, they both serve multiple counties, you know, they're not controlled by a single city within the region. Um, and in some ways, their, their routes are almost uh, kind of duplicative, uh, especially with some of the BART expansion plans to further serve San Jose and the South Bay. Um, so, yeah, maybe, maybe it'd be good to actually make it all just one agency with more seamless transfers and easier fare integration and um, like uh, putting the riders first for once. <laughs> That would be the way to do it. I'd say, yeah, to merge them if only to cut service. I don't know if I'd want to see that one. But it, it does seem like the smart trend is, yeah, towards you know larger, more comprehensive, more empowered transit agencies. And, you know, and of course, you know, partnering transit with DOT so you have control over the street. So um, it would be also, interesting. Yeah, there's, there's obviously the, the crisis today, which is financial. But I think the long-term vision is, is perhaps even more striking in, in its you know, potential positive benefits where – 
know, Caltrain's already electrifying uh, their corridor, so it'd be one of the few uh, electrified, um, you know, quote unquote commuter rail systems in the U.S., which would allow it to run more frequent service with you know faster uh, scheduled time. Um, and then there's like a much further out in the distant plans idea of doing another crossing underneath the bay. And so, you know, the idea is then, okay, if we get Caltrain running under the bay, then it's serving East Bay as well. More opportunities to kind of, you know, have seamless transfers where you're having different trains from different lines are now, you know, branded as barter Caltrain, all kind of weaving in and out and serving the whole mega region more fluidly. So, wow. And, yeah, and, and no Hyperloop tunnels involved. This sounds amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> I, yeah, I know if only, if only Bart can throttle back throughput to 35 passengers per hour, then it could be the future again. This sounds amazing. Um, well, now, now that we've got public transport behind, it's time to move on to the travails and uh, of the various OEMs here, because un- unlike public transportation, they depend extremely heavily on microchips, which has become, I don't know, Jonah, have we heard that, you know, chips are the new oil yet? Because I feel like that is definitely a thing here. Um, but, um, but yeah, Ford and GM found themselves in a pickle apparently this past week. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, seemingly the story just won't die, um, but continued shortages of microchips, which, you know, kind of the long tail of the pandemic and then, you know, add on top the, uh, uh, canal blockage from a couple weeks ago. And just, it's a tough time to be a manufacturer that needs, high volume chips. So both Ford and GM are saying they expect to see about $2 billion in uh, profit loss annually um, due to the shortage of chips. They're, they're idling plants. They're just you know, not making cars. So it's, uh, it's starting to weigh down on the economy. It's really interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I was half joking about the you know chips and the new oil because obviously it's a major point of geopolitical tension uh, with China and basically the race to control various chip fabs. With Intel announcing it's building another one in the states, we're sort of seeing this fall there. But it'll be it'll be very interesting to see how this trickles down to various national auto industries, right? I mean, um, it, it escapes me, but I know one of China's big OEMs just released a, a, or just you know unveiled the prototype of a of a new electric shooting brake, as they called it. Um, and yeah, it'll be very curious to see sort of how this affects, uh, you know, uh, other automakers like Toyota, of course, which locked in its chip supply years ago due to previous shortages from the Fukushima disaster, I believe a decade ago, they learned their lesson from that. So, um, yeah, the pandemics caused a lot of people to rethink a lot of supply chains. It'll be very interesting to sort of see how these, how these patterns resolve themselves. So we'll keep an eye on that. I think, uh, the U S will clearly defend the Strait of Taiwan, if not just to, uh, keep the semiconductor factories, uh, supplying our, our uh, <laughs> big three automakers. Well, that's true. This segues to our next one, a, a, a potential emergent into automaking, long rumored, which also has lots of experience in making its own silicon, which is our friends at the world's, last time I checked, most profitable corporation on the planet, Apple. Um, so do we have an Apple car yet, Jonah, or not? There's, uh, I mean, you know, you, you can never predict anything Apple until you actually have it in your hands. But uh, according to some reports coming out of Korea, I think the Korea Times originally um, Apple may finally have a partner to manufacture its, uh, you know, long rumored Apple car. And so that would be a kind of partnership between a few players. So LG electronics, hence the, uh, Korea angle. And then also Magna, which is a big, uh, kind of multinational, I think what Canadian headquartered, um, uh, manufacturer of, of all sorts of components. Yeah. Tier one supplier for, yeah, for automakers. Very so, interesting. Well, uh, it, it is yeah. interesting that Apple. Would... Uh, I mean, that still still this means even if this actually happens, we're still years away from getting that Apple car. But uh, may, maybe it's moving forward. 
Well, it is interesting to see Apple's, you know, I mean, this gets to the notion of, um, you know, the, the various tech companies being like, well, we can build phones. We, you know, we've mastered these supply chains. We could certainly build the car. It is interesting that if it's true that, you know, this Apple realizing that it's going to have to integrate with the conventional tier one, you know, OEM supply chains to get this sort of stuff built. I mean, you know, LG Electronics sounds a little usual suspects, but Magna, you know, there's no other computer makers that are partnering with Magna. That's when you start to get serious. So that will be interesting. To, to, and, to me, the, the question just continues to be like, why? You know, what 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 is the point of all this? Um, from a profit margin standpoint, it's like a terrible idea. Like, you know, Apple just prints money on everything it does, whereas, you know, cars are... A commodity. I mean, even luxury cars. The the margins are way thinner than any anything Apple gains to put its logo on. So it's sort of like, what's the play here? Well, I don't have a Harvard MBA, so I can't I can't quote you, you know, Michael Porter on strategy. But I do think at some point, obviously, you know, you do need to find uh, you know new growth markets and growth products. I mean, Apple's got a hundred billion dollars in cash. At some point, that cash starts to drag on your balance sheet even more than if you don't build anything at all. So. I don't know. It, it will be interesting to see how they sell this, and obviously the you know the you know the, the huge wins posted by Tesla and others have got people thinking about this. I, I would imagine you know you scratch the surface and you get back to the same explanations that everyone else has. Going back to like some of those bullish Morgan Stanley reports about Tesla, about like you know the you know the car is a phone on wheels and it becomes a way of unlocking a new you know renewable energy stack that runs through the home, and you know now, then sooner or later you find yourself in like you know imagining an Apple house with an Apple car, et cetera, which is exactly what Tesla has talked about doing with various degrees of seriousness. So it'll be interesting. I, Perhaps I the only one who can bring, stop Elon is Tim Cook. We'll see. Bring back the Newton. That's what they should be doing with their cash instead. There you go. Well, you know, voice voice recognition, handwriting recognition. We'll we'll see. One um, <laughs> may have outlapsed. How are the Newtons time to shine? <laughs> well, well, speaking speaking of, of you know of AVs and cars and unusual partnerships here. I mean, I mean, uh, Cruise has just raised apparently two point seven five billion dollars from Walmart among its others. So I think that's really interesting. Now now we're getting into like fun corporate strategy here. So apparently this is a bet by Walmart to get into sort of logistics stack. What do you think is behind this news item? It's yeah, it's it's. I think we've actually seen a lot of things kind of moving in this direction, right? Too simple, another um, AV for kind of um, trucking and freight just uh, unlocked a bunch of cash as well. So I, I think we're starting to see. I don't know if, if the whole market realizing this, or maybe just really strategic, uh, you know, um, you know, e-commerce wholesalers, you know, pe- people that need to use freight, realizing that all right, maybe maybe the AV for general, you know, car usage isn't quite ready, but for specialized applications like freight and logistics, where you're going to know you're just on you know highway 20 for you know 500 miles, and you can map it out and uh, have fewer edge cases, seems like the AV future is approaching a little bit faster than we expected. Yes, we perhaps perhaps it will arrive here finally in 2021. Um, well, I want to point out, you know, we've covered the AV side, but I want to pivot quickly here before we cut to our guest here on just the pure EV side. So it's interesting, the past few days, as you're listening to this, we've seen two of the big German OEMs have come out with their next model AV. So we've got Mercedes dropping the 2022 EQS 580, which is basically an electric S-Class. Uh, and then Audi came out with the Q4, which is their sort of, you know, a little bit more entry-level electric SUV on the e-tron platform. Um, so it's very interesting. So now there's lots of lively speculation out there among the, you know, the EV heads about, you know, uh, to quote Alex Roy out on Twitter, for example, Mercedes or Lucid Air? And of course, you know, the faithful lineup to shout the, the, uh, the, the joys of, of Lucid, even though last time I checked, they haven't actually produced a car yet. So I guess, you know, push comes to shove and I had to put my money down. I 
probably would go with the one that actually has a you know century long history of producing cars. But but it will be interesting, Jonah, about if other customers feel that way. If they look at this and be like, whatever, more of the same. Like here, I'm going to go with the unproven, gorgeous, clean sheet design of something. It, it's I, I think it's going to be really interesting for the EV segment. When we hit the space here. We're like you know Tesla successfully built this from scratch before the OEMs were fully paying attention. But now going forward, like you know, can everybody be a Tesla? Can you truly boot up that supply chain and compete with? The full-throated fervor of the OEMs and their, you know, auto, you know, manufacturing efficiencies. I don't know. We'll see. You're an electric car owner. What do you think? And a big three, a big three owner, nonetheless. Oh, you remember? I, I had to return my Volta a few weeks ago. Uh, at least was up. But no, I think if there's one thing that says is that yeah, you know, once once the Germans are all in, you know, EVs are here to stay. Uh, you know, they're they're generally uh, on the more cautious side. So um, it's. Obviously, a, a trend that's that's not a trend. It's a it's a real thing, and that's why I'm excited to talk to our guest in, in a second, um, Zach Jennings, CEO of uh, EV charging startup Chargy. We're gonna kind of really get into the the details of you know where the EV market is headed and what all the proposed legislation out of uh, DC and Sacramento means for this uh, quickly growing industry. All right. Well, let's hear from Zach. All right, everyone. I'm here with. This week's guest, Zach Jennings, the CEO of Chargy, which is a EV charging startup based out of uh, the greater LA region. Really excited to have him on, and thank you for Tracy for setting this up because I think it's a great, timely conversation. Obviously, EVs, EV charging, very much in the news, given all the kind of you know investment, incentive, subsidy things happening out of DC and in other local governments. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Hey, Jonah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, as anyone that listens to this show uh, probably knows, we, we're big fans of EVs. We obviously, we love to rib on Elon, but, uh, you know, this is America after all. And I think realistically, if we're going to tackle our climate goals, we, we need to get people out of uh, ICE and into EV vehicles. So anyone that's working towards that goal, uh, you know, I, I wish them all the best. Zach, why don't you give us a, a little background on Chargy? Yes, I'd love to. Um, so we actually started off uh, at PCS Energy here in Los Angeles in the solar space. We really focused on providing solar to apartment buildings and commercial buildings. Um, and as we developed through that, we started getting the request for EV chargers. Um, so once the EV charging business kind of picked up, we started dabbling into it. We quickly realized as we scaled up that we're running into issues with the hardware and solutions that were being provided so we decided to go off and create our own network, Chargy, rebrand it, and move past some of the, the limitations that other solutions had. Uh, so we were really focused um, on installing a system that is very flexible and easy for the user to, to uh, activate and get all the information they want out of it. You know, giving the user control, but in a simple manner, is really kind of the focus of us, and also keeping it all cost-effective so that the building owners can afford to get the infrastructure installed. I like it. It sounds like a kind of a classic, like we saw the problem and we went out to solve it kind of business. Uh, so it's, I like that. And especially in this world where like we've seen so many, <laughs> you know, EV focused companies in the last year or so, just like, is there a business model there? Like, or are you just like figured out how to grab a billion dollars from <laughs> random investors and figure out the, what you're doing later. So if you're actually solving a problem. Kudos to you. Correct, correct. Yeah, no, it's a pretty incredible to see how much activity is in the industry, especially this past year. It's, it's uh, picked up a lot. Yeah. And so you guys, um, it's funny, we were actually talking about this a little bit on the show yesterday or last week um, with Alex Mitchell from Lacey, who I think I know you know as well. But 
there's there's so many different yep. models people are taking about you know charging and where charging should happen you know whether it's roadside or at a business or at your home or apartment building or office um, so you guys you're more in the charge at your apartment building sort of focus right uh, we have two main things, and this is kind of the way we, we discuss it, is we look for what we call bookends, which are the two places you're going to have the longest dwell periods or spend the most time. Uh, and those two places are your office and where you live. Um, you know, single family homes have their own resources and can get their own power to put their own level twos in. So that's not our focus. It's really on apartment buildings. You know, they're underserved in their access to get to EV charging infrastructure. So we've really focused to get that as an efficient system that can be very cost effective for everyone involved. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I, I like that kind of bookend um, analogy there. I, I always kind of wonder, I mean, You've seen so many of them pop up in the not even recently in the last you know few years honestly like there's the the model of the people where you're at Whole Foods and you charge there and you know it's it's all seemingly subsidized by like that giant TV screen running on the charger and it's yep <laughs> it, it kind of made sense as like a stopgap solution like back in the sort of you know forty mile range EV days but I mean even today where most EVs on the market are, are you know, already get you the equivalent of a, a you know, gas car's range it's I just don't understand who's going to top up to get an extra 10 miles while they're at Whole Foods versus just restoring your whole tank overnight or while you're at work. It's, it's, I'm kind of curious about a lot of Correct. And other models. Yeah, and I think that's all part of the you know, evolution of the industry. You have to start somewhere, and those were places that you know, it drew a lot of attention and created some buzz about it. So from that aspect, it's good. But when you start looking at efficient installations and really providing the best experience to the user, I agree with you. As vehicles start having longer range, those become less desirable. Um, obviously, there's a big place for corridor charging mm -hmm. for doing trips, like when you talk Tesla Supercharge Network or EV Go, that provides a definitely a useful service. Um, but from a scalability standpoint, you know, most of the usage is going to occur in those two bookends that I discussed earlier. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's and uh, as we talked about last week as well. Like, even if it doesn't make sense, uh, and, and again, Alex Mitchell is just a smart guy, I guess, but had this sort of useful analogy where even some of the investments that might not make sense today, like what we're doing, is we're laying the groundwork for you know, someone to figure out a better way to use them tomorrow. So even if it doesn't make sense to me that I would want to charge it Whole Foods while I'm you know, in there for 30 minutes, the fact that someone's already laid the conduit and done the installation is, is kind of setting the groundwork for just further EV growth. So, uh, you know. Of course. Whatever, and, whatever and it gets more uh, attention. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm kind of curious. Obviously, uh, electrification has been in the news a lot lately with um, – both the, the most recent you know, Recovery Act, which had some sort of you know, infrastructure earmarks, but then I'd say more excitingly, the, the kind of proposed legislation um, out of the current administration, which has just you know, buku bucks for not just uh, you know, EV manufacturing, but for all sorts of other incentives about charging and whatnot. Um, you know, not, not trying to get you in the weeds here, but I, I mean, how do you guys think about uh, the incentive structure to, to kind of jumpstart this economy? Uh, I think it's an amazing way to go to get some momentum behind the industry. You know, incentive and rebates are great, uh, but in a, you know, in any industry, they're not sustainable in the long term. And the industry needs to be sustainable to pe uh, provide the proper foundation for the EV revolution. So we think that you know the, the amount of money coming into it is incredibly helpful. It's going to really start getting spur the growth. Um, and if you look at a lot of other industries out there, that when they're first starting. 
like solar, for instance, had tons of subsidies and incentives. Mm. Those have slowly started to kind of dwindle. And uh, I think that's the same way that the EV industry will go. They'll slowly start to fade out, um, which is going to be great as long as it's gradual. It allows the, the industry to support itself and become its own economic center. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Lord knows that basically everything else in this world is subsidized. So <laughs> for, for the free market. Exactly. I mean, you look at the, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, when you look at the fuel industry and you go, how much money we're subsidizing on that side? It's like, hey, let's just push a little over the EV side and that'll be incredibly helpful. Yeah, and then not to mention negative externalities and, and all sorts of, you know, the, the hidden costs baked into things. Um, and I think also, I mean, to me as, as a dork, it's, it's maybe even more important than the federal level is the sort of state and local subsidies. And, and I think that's obviously why, you know, California and Southern California in particular really have become this probably the spot for EVs in the country, um, you know, combination of the I think, existing, uh, you know, history of automotive innovation and technology. But of course, the state and LEDWP have been very generous in terms of uh, their own rebates uh, and, and kind of being ahead of the curve there. Um, is there anything that you would see like other states could learn from there? I think we've done an amazing job. And yeah, you got to thank um, Arnold Schwarzenegger from when he was governor creating the cap and trade system with uh, the LCFS. You know, it's been a huge beneficial um, revenue stream for a lot of EV networks out there. And I think there are going to be other states that take on some form of what uh, he pioneered. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I feel like the, the governor always gets kind of like under remembered. And he obviously had a kind of rocky tenure. Um, you know, both coming in on the recall and then being you know, afterwards being, uh, you know, uh, seen out by uh, seemingly everyone's favorite governor after him. But, um, yeah, he really <laughs> laid the groundwork for a lot of kind of environmentally responsible things. And it's, it's you almost forget that he had a little R attached at the end of his uh, name at the time. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and one yeah. day we'll even get that bullet train, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's uh, it's on its way. What did they say? Uh, yeah. Another five years or so? Uh, it's seemingly every five years, another five years away. But uh, one one day, our, our, all our kids will be able to ride from Fresno to Bakersfield or something. <laughs> yeah, cars will be flying by then. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, if, if cars are flying, just think of the, uh, the, the energy load we're going to need to maintain those. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, I mean... Yeah, it's, it's to me, it's it's really exciting what's what's happening in the space, um, and it's it's cool to see all the investment in it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, are you are you long term? Like, you know, are you an EV man? I have to assume you're, you're driving an EV at home too. No? Uh correct. Yeah, and a lot a lot of people at our office are as well. So um, we we did something in the beginning about three years ago and created a program within the company that allowed employees to uh, purchase an EV. Um, so we got a lot of people into the EV space that, you know, once they got into electric vehicle, you know, they're not going back. So it's been great to kind of get the data and a case study out of that as well, because it goes to show once you do get to the EV side of, uh, you know, driving experience, one, it's just much more enjoyable. And two, it's just much more affordable as well. You don't have to deal with nearly as much maintenance and all those other problems that you have with, uh, ICE vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just... After like briefly borrowing like a, an old car for for a couple of weeks, it was just like, oh right, like this this is what like going to a gas station frequently is like. Like after three years of not doing that, it's like this this sucks. Like it, it takes time. It's like I, I smell like gasoline afterwards, and like <laughs> and it's just fun watching like money fly out of my pocket. 
Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, EV has so many benefits that people forget about. But it's like, imagine if you had a gas station in your garage, that's the equivalent of having a charger in your garage. You know, you have no need to ever go to it anywhere else to charge that vehicle yeah. unless you're on a trip. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully that means that for people that live in um, New Jersey and Oregon, there's also going to be like a one little guy in everyone's garage. To, to <laughs> yeah. Kind of be Don't have to plug it in. Pass. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, so what else, Zach? I mean, I, I get the sense that you also kind of watch the, you know, the mobility space, the urban space, like, like anything else that's been in the news lately that's kind of caught your eye or, or interesting stories to watch? Um, I think overall, the biggest thing that's so exciting to see is the amount of EVs finally coming out. You know, all these companies and manufacturers have been talking EV for quite a while, but not acting on it. And mm-hmm. you obviously the Tesla just blowing through the roof it drew the attention by everyone else to go, okay, this is a real thing. We need to to act on it and adjust. And finally this year and next year, you're starting to see a lot more options, a lot more affordable EVs. um, And it should help spur a lot of growth within the industry. You know, back when it was just Tesla and I three from BMW and a couple other vehicles is incredibly limiting. So that that was a huge uh, hindrance or barrier for the EV. Sure. Yeah, and in, in the in the first half of the show, it's funny. Uh, Greg and I were actually talking about you know, just this past week. We saw um, Mercedes introduced uh, or like you know, formally unveiled their their next EV, and it's like you know a normal looking car. Um, and of course, there's like a, a new Audi sedan. So it's you know obviously Audi's had their uh, e-tron for a while, and there's been the BMW. But but once the the German OEMs are all in on EVs, like you know that the ground has shifted because the, they're not. <laughs> Germans aren't known for being like particularly, uh, uh, well, let's just say they're, they're often conservative in their business culture, right? So the fact that you can get a whole range of EVs from them now, I think, means that there's no putting the, the cat back in the bag. Definitely. And I, I think the main hurdle they're going to face is, is obviously batteries. Batteries, batteries, batteries. It's, uh, it's the next frontier. Whoever can really crack the code on that and get the energy density improved, cost down, that is going to be a massive benefit. Yeah, <laughs> here's here's looking at you, QuantumScape. <laughs> the time to put up or shut. Yeah, up. exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, Zach. I mean, yeah, this was a lot of fun. I, I love dorking out about EVs. Obviously, um, any other kind of parting thoughts for our audience? Um, no, just overall, it's a it's a really exciting space. Glad to see so much interest in it, and um, you know, I think the main focus is to get all this standardized and more you know, accessible to everyone, so that. You know, and there's no reason that anyone in America can't join the EV revolution and be a part of it. I uh, couldn't agree more. All right. Thanks so much, Zach. And, and for listeners at home, that's uh, Zach Jennings, CEO of Chargy. Thanks, everyone. All right. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, we love talking about EVs on this show um, and the, the race, the battle to figure out, you know, where you're going to charge and who owns that land is pretty consequential. So I don't know, Greg, where, where do you want to see your next charger installed? Well, you know, I obviously we need a lot more housing in this country as well. So I do like the notion of like that, you know, that basically as we build more multifamily, doing mass charger installations there. And I think, and this harkens back to partners we've had like Envoy and others that like, you know, the notion of like multifamily mobility as a service, I think, I think for most Americans is that is the entry level, right? Like we talk about wonderful mass platforms on here but just the notion of like i rent this apartment and i can have access to a car which i can look at on an app to make sure i have one available and i can book it and i can bring it back here and charge it 
I think that's, I don't know, I'd like to think that at scale, that is a real sort of game changer in how we provision mobility. But um, but yeah, more ambitious folks than I are going to have to try. Where, where, where would you like yours, Jonah, as, a, as again, as a former EV owner yourself and perhaps in the future again? All, all I can say is there's probably a better solution than me running the extension cord out the window, as has been my solution for the last three years. <laughs> yes, there could be more elegant infrastructure than that, that's for sure. Um, well, great. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for joining me, Jonah, as always. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Fast Forward. Until then, take care.